there's no competition at that level of cuteness. So I try to try to make sure that the cute has left. Uh, not that you're not all cute. But, uh. Well, last Sunday we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, that glorious turning point in in all of human history. And as you study what took place afterwards, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared on several different occasions. Uh, before different groups of his disciples, before going up to heaven. And then a few short days after that, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early Christians during the festival of Pentecost, and thus the church was born. Now, across 20 centuries, Christian life and church life have had ups and downs, right? There have been incredible things seen and done for the glory of God, and yet at the same time, we've also seen terrible personal and and organizational church failures. Church life and and Christian life, let's be honest, these things are going to have issues, right? They are not going to be perfect until Jesus returns, because we are, all of us, fallen creatures of dust, and even, even the the best and most transformed of us still have residual sin in our hearts that that bursts forth from time to time. And we see these ups and downs, the good, the bad, and the ugly of Christian life. We see them laid out early in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Now, the Revelation is describing a vision that was given to the Apostle John. And specifically, it's a vision about the end of times, the things that will happen before the ultimate uh, return of Christ, the final judgments, and the perfection, the new heaven and the new earth, when things become as they ought to be. But it begins with a vision uh, and a message for some local churches. Right, because the, the revelation itself, all of it, is actually addressed to seven major churches that were in the Roman province of Asia, what we today know as Turkey. And these were churches for which John, the one who received the revelation, these were churches he was responsible for. And so, but the point that comes through the revelation is that it is for the benefit of, of all churches and all Christians across all time. Now, at the moment he received the revelation, the vision, John was living in exile on a desert island off the coast of Turkey, the island of Patmos. And, and one Sunday he was worshiping when he received this vision. And, and in the vision he sees the glorified Jesus standing among seven golden lampstands that symbolically represent these seven churches for which he is responsible. And in his hands, Jesus is holding seven stars that represent either the churches themselves or their their leaders. We'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. And the first section of the vision, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, are, are seven short messages, letters, if you will, from Jesus that are addressed to these seven individual churches, but they're meant to be read by all of them. Right, The letter was to, to go to the church in Ephesus, which was nearest to Patmos. They were to read it, and then it was to, to circulate, go around literally in a geographic circle amongst these seven churches, because what is recorded in there is indeed for all churches. And it's these seven messages, these seven letters, that are going to be the, the focus of our spring sermon series, One Church Per Week. 
And as the series will unfold, we're going to see that the seven churches of Revelation are a mixed bag. Right? There are some that are, that are like super churches. They're very healthy spiritually. There are some that are a complete and total mess. They are spiritually very unhealthy. And then most of the churches are somewhere in between. Right? They have some spiritual strengths. They've got some spiritual weaknesses. I think most of us can relate to that, right? Many of us would admit we have both strengths and weaknesses, good parts and bad parts to us. And each of the letters is highlighting some different challenges and aspects of Christian life. They identify some of the risks and roadblocks that we still experience today to truly living our faith, living in fidelity to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And yet they offer both encouragement to the good and exhortation on being polite, right? Rebuke, get on the case of, right? To step it up and glorify Jesus Christ. These letters offer valuable lessons to us as individual Christians, and they also are valuable to us as a church. As we seek to live our vision to be a lighthouse for Christ at the corner of Clipper and Mariner, as we emphasize this year being the lighthouse, living this vision individually and collectively. The final verse of the passage we're going to be looking at today says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? So let's, let's realize this is not a history lesson. These seven weeks are not some fascinating history channel docu- you know, documentary, or maybe not fascinating, that's your choice, but, but uh, some documentary series on these seven churches. No, Jesus is talking to us today in 2019 in Lake Ridge, Virginia, just as surely as he was talking to those churches back then. As I mentioned, the churches are addressed sequentially. It's a geographic circle uh, that begins with one closest to John, the church in Ephesus we'll be talking about today. And what Jesus had to say to them is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. That may not be the most readable, but you've got Bibles in your seats. Let's up the font size. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. There's a phrase you never want to hear from Jesus. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the things, the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As we unfold this series, we're going to see that Jesus is pretty pretty real to these churches. He brings it pretty strong. He is not going to be afraid to tell you when you've got problems. 
As we look at each of the seven letters, I'm going to be highlighting from each one, one risk to the Christian life, something that can be a stumbling block, a roadblock for us, something that can get us off track as followers of Jesus. And then one command for us to to better glorify God through the way we live our lives. And for this church, the church at Ephesus, the risk is loveless obedience. And the command is simply to love more. Now, it's kind of interesting. The New Testament tells us more about the Ephesian church than it does about any other church from that time. It's a church that is planted by Paul in Acts chapter 19, roughly the year 52 A.D. We know Paul spent about three years in Ephesus building up the church. By the time the church celebrated its 10th anniversary in the year 62 A.D., Paul writes his letter to the Ephesian church, and it it seems things are going great because he does not mention any problems. But just a few years later, in the mid-60s, there is a problem. False teaching has required Paul to send Timothy to clean up the mess that is described in 1 Timothy. Now, the revelation to John probably was written in the mid-90s. Not everyone agrees, but most likely the mid-90s. And the now roughly 40-year-old church at Ephesus uh, has clearly cleaned up the doctrinal problems. That's to the good, but it has a serious need for renewal and revitalization. And That's not uncommon when a church hits about the 40-year mark. As we work to understand and apply this letter to our lives as Christians and to our life as a church, I believe this letter is highlighting two pieces of good news and one piece of bad news. So we'll start with the good news. All right, because everyone wants to start with the good news. So good news item number one, Jesus cares deeply about his churches. It is very clear from verse 1 that Jesus is deeply involved with the local church. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Right, Those seven golden lampstands, we are told in chapter 1, they represent the churches themselves. Now, the stars represent the angels of the churches. And, and I'll just say the meaning of that is not entirely clear because the word angel can also be translated as messenger. Now, I think most people would say it might represent literal angels who who care for and guard individual churches. And and I love this because if so, this is very encouraging that somewhere there is an angel for Lakehurst Baptist Church. And that's awesome. Alternately, some say that since it could be understood as messengers, it may represent the pastors of the churches since they receive the letter. Or it could be a personification of the church itself. But regardless of that, what matters is that Jesus walks among his churches and holds them in his hand. Right? How great is that? Jesus is here right now, present in Lakehurst Baptist Church. He's deeply involved in the care and the protection of his church. He's deeply concerned about the affairs of his church and what we do and how we do it and why we do it. Which is incredibly encouraging, but it also needs to be sobering for us. To remember that in every moment as our life as a church, right, when we gather for worship, when we gather for a Bible study, when we gather for a business meeting or a seminar or a fun event or to do, you know, serious work of the church, Jesus is present and evaluated. 
But this loving concern really shouldn't surprise us because Jesus died to establish the church. So obviously he cares a lot. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He is God himself. He didn't have to involve himself in the affairs of the world, the everyday affairs of us, but he chose to do so in order to restore God's creation that had fallen into sin. You see, we each get ourselves into a mess of sin we just can't get ourselves out of. Well, most of us try real hard to do the right thing. We want to be good, decent people. I I believe that sincerely about everyone here. The truth is, we're never 100% successful, are we? We routinely give in to temptation, and we we say or do something we shouldn't, or, or we fail to step up and say or do something we should. Right? All of us should be familiar with this. If not, let me know, because I want to know your secret. And when this happens, right, when we choose ourselves and our desires over God's goodwill for our lives, or when we selfishly choose ourselves at the expense of others, or we dishonor God for near-term fun and gratification, we're sinning. And this sin separates us from the perfect and holy and good God who created us. And the only way that separation, that sin, can be reversed is through the sacrificial death of something. Something innocent. Because sin is deadly serious. That sacrifice is what Jesus made on the cross. Right? Well, we remember on Good Friday that he died to pay the penalty for our sin, to reverse the curse of mankind's sin, to make peace between us and God. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus made it possible for anyone who trusts in him as Lord and Savior to be forgiven, to be set free from the penalty of this sin. And in so doing, Jesus established the church, his followers, as his chosen instruments for making new disciples and encouraging existing followers to become more like Jesus, to be growing every day of our lives into the likeness of Jesus Christ. His his identity and his sin-free life and his death on the cross and his resurrection are the foundation of the church. But Jesus didn't just die to establish the church. The Bible tells us repeatedly that the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, Jesus cares deeply about the church because the church is his wife. Now, if you've ever loved a spouse, right, that's just a tiny fraction, a drop in the bucket. However, however much you, you love your spouse, that is a drop in the bucket to how much Jesus loves his church. And so no wonder he walks among us and, and holds us in his hand. Because he loves us in a profound and deep way beyond anything we are capable of mustering up for the most beloved spouse imaginable. And yet today's verses are very clear. Jesus does not accept any individual church unconditionally. If a particular church fails him, he'll snuff it out. Rather than let it present a false picture of who he is. That's the last portion of verse 5. If 
If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Right? The lampstand is the symbol of the church. He will destroy the church unless you repent. So the good news is Jesus cares deeply about his churches, but we have to be very careful because guess what? Jesus cares deeply about his churches. And that brings us to the second piece of good news, right? Good news item number two, Jesus appreciates hard work, discernment, and endurance. These are the good qualities of the Ephesian church. And as verse 7 makes clear, right, these truths still apply. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, right? What Jesus is applauding here is good for every church. What Jesus is condemning is bad for any church. And for the church at Ephesus, Jesus first applauds their hard work. In verse 2, I know your works, your toil. Right? I know you work hard in life, and I know you work hard for the church. Well, Jesus knows it too, and he appreciates how hard churches work on his behalf. Hard work does not save us from our sins, right? That much is clear. That's only by grace through faith that we are saved. The Bible is clear, though, that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we were made to work hard. So if you're looking for a vacation, sorry. Right? We were made to do good things on Jesus' behalf. Ephesians 2.10 celebrates, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in. So as Christians, we should each be working hard to do the good things that God has already prepared for you and you and you and you and you and me to do. So on that note, go ahead and mark your calendars now. Right? I think you heard a story related to this from Bill earlier. Mark your calendars right now. If you use a phone, grab it. You're, you're allowed to use your phone in church. For September 20th through 22nd, right? A little less than five months away. That's going to be our 2019 Love Our Neighbors weekend. And I want everybody here to be there. And everybody who isn't here to be there. And everybody who's not here yet to be there. Right? We've already got a leadership team that is praying and planning and tapping people on the shoulder to get involved. Pretty soon we're going to be letting you start signing up so we can get ready for the good works that God has already prepared for you to do that weekend that we don't even know about yet. So he appreciates it when we work hard. He also appreciates discernment, carefully evaluating what's taught in church and Bible studies. All right, verse 2 compliments the church there on how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, right? Who, who said, hey, I'm sent by the church. I'm sent by Christ. I'm here to teach you stuff. He's tested them and said they are not apostles and found them to be false. The specific issue seems to be highlighted in verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know much about the false teaching of the Nicolaitans, but it probably looks like it was related to teaching that immoral living and particularly sexual immorality was okay, likely due to misunderstanding the nature of God's grace and his will. 
And clearly, Jesus applauds and he even insists that churches and Christians, we have to be careful about what we listen to. Right? That as followers of Jesus, we need to be regularly testing the things we read, the things we watch, the things we listen to, particularly those that are talking to us about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, about how to live the faith and be a Christian, to make sure it's actually true. Right? Because the world is full of false teaching about the faith and false claims about God and false teachings about Jesus and false teaching about the Bible. And we, we all are responsibly to be sufficiently familiar with God's word to protect ourselves by testing whether something is true or not, right? And that applies to me, right? Don't just listen to me on Sunday and be like, okay, whatever he said, it must be true, right? Check to make sure I'm on point biblically. This is your responsibility. I have a responsibility that I'm going to answer for if I teach you false stuff. But you got to protect yourselves. Scripture is clear, we must be constantly on guard against false teaching from both outside and inside the church. And Jesus appreciates it when we are. And he also appreciates endurance, right? Verse 3 says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, the church at Ephesus was enduring some amount of localized persecution, right? The very same reason that John was in exile on this desert island. There was a, a localized persecution going on in that region. And the church was suffering for the name of Jesus. And they were doing it without growing tired, without renouncing the faith, right? Now, we are fortunate that right now, we don't typically face much persecution but there's always a price to be paid for following Jesus. Sacrifices must be made of our time and our energy and our money to advance the work of God's kingdom. That's a plain and simple fact. That's why Jesus sternly warned, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The call and invitation of Jesus is an invitation to long and faithful endurance for the sake of God's kingdom. And the joy of that invitation is that Jesus walks alongside us every step of the way. That's the good part. Right? The Holy Spirit transforms and empowers us to take up our cross every morning, no matter what faces us. And that role of the Holy Spirit is critically important because there is a risk for Christians and for churches who work hard, who are constantly discerning, and who grittily endure indignity and suffering. And the risk is this, that if we are not careful to nurture our spiritual life, we can become cold and harsh, grim and joyless, stern and unloving. That's what happened in Ephesus. And let's be honest, it is common in churches Today, right, it is common in Bible-believing churches to lose that love and to become that. And that's where we get to the bad news. Right? The bad news is that Jesus condemns loveless obedience, right? We Christians can get so focused on doing the right thing that we do the right things for the wrong reasons, in the wrong way. We become legalistic. We follow God's rules out of fear or, or grim duty rather than out of love for the, the wondrous God of the universe who rescued us from our sin, who rescued us from death, 
to the sacrifice of his own son. And it's a sin to go through the motions of Christianity without love. That's the the key message of this passage, verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Right? I will destroy you as a church unless you repent. The Christians in Ephesus have totally abandoned their first love. Now, the great, command tells, great commandment tells us what that is. Our first love is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. The Ephesians have abandoned both love for God and love for neighbor. How do I know this? Because you cannot walk away from one without walking away from the other. We can't really love God if we don't love the people made in his image, which is every person we encounter. And we can't truly love people if we don't really love the one who made them, right? They're image bearers of God. We have to love God if we're really going to love and understand and do what's best for those people. 1 John 4, 20 and 21 explain, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, as Christians, the, the ugliness and the brokenness of the world around us can cause our love to grow cold. In Matthew 24, 12, Jesus explained that because lawlessness will be increased, I think we see plenty of that, the love of many will grow cold. That's the risk. As we see more and more clearly how broken this world is, right? as we absorb more and more of the bad news headlines, as we see how difficult and hurtful the struggle of life is and how ugly and unjust and cruel people are to each other, we, we can lose our love for people and just settle for for condemnation and withdrawal. But we can also lose our love for God as we question how he could permit such things to happen. And the thing is that when we focus so much on the world and its problems, and we focus too little on Christ, that's when our love grows cold. The Ephesians were so busy defending their doctrine, gritting their teeth to endure persecution, and doing the hard work for God that they took their eyes off the glorious risen Savior they were enduring and working for. The one who had died for them and risen from death for them. Unfortunately, loveless obedience like this, joyless Christianity, is a false testimony to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus condemns it because it's a lie. In John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, right, to death, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, our testimony to an unbelieving world around us is supposed to be our love for one another. Our joy in Christ, regardless of our external circumstances, whether they are good or bad, healthy or sick, 
wonderful or miserable, right? Our joy in Christ, despite that, is the evidence to a watching world of the transforming work of God's Spirit within us. And so if we're just grinding out our Christianity in grim and loveless obedience, we are lying about who Jesus is. We are lying about what He died for. We are lying about what He does for us every single day. And clearly that's a sin, because Jesus told the Ephesian church to repent. So if that describes you this morning, or you wake up one day and you realize it describes you, or it describes a friend, or it describes an entire church, what should you do? Repent and fall in love with Jesus all over again. That's the invitation, right? Verse 5 says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Repenting and remembering, those are the key, right? Remember what Christ did for you on the cross. Remember what the empty tomb means for you. Think about the new life, the new creation, the new freedom, the new forgiveness, the new hope, and the new purpose that Jesus gave you when He rose from the dead. Think about what He does in your life every day if you will just let Him. Giving you meaning, giving you purpose, bringing healing and transformation and peace no matter how bad your life situation might be. Then think about Jesus walking with you, suffering alongside you, strengthening you in your weakness and your sickness and your sorrow, loving you through your messes and your mistakes. Spend time with Him every day in the Bible. Right? The Bible is a massive love letter to you from God. So read it and fall in love again. Pick up one of the reading plans on the table in the back right, and start reading every day. For me, there is nothing that renews my love for God like spending that time each morning in the Word as I, as I think about all that He has done and all that He is going to do. Make time to pray every day, right? Let's just put this in human terms. It's hard to love somebody that you seldom talk to. Prayer is talking to God. Make time for that. Take five or ten minutes to meditate on Scripture each day. What does that mean? Just thinking deeply and carefully about what it says. Once again, it's hard to love someone you don't spend any time thinking about, right? When we love somebody, how much time do we spend thinking about them, right? We we meditate on them all the time. All kinds of things we meditate about. We're not going to talk about that up here, but we, we, they, we get a little obsessed. So spend some time each day thinking about Him and fall in love again. Worship regularly in public and private. Train yourself to be thankful for the big things and the little things God provides. Cultivate your love for Christ and renew it each day. Show the love of Jesus to others in ways that are practical and sacrificial. Right, Because as we show God's love to others, because of His love for us, the interesting thing is we are going to grow in our love for Him. As Christ's love overflows our hearts, it gets easier and easier to let our light shine before others. So that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. It gets easier and easier to be the lighthouse as we love Jesus more and more. 
So we have to do what Jesus applauds, work hard, defend the truths of our faith, and endure difficulties and persecution. But we have to resist and resist and resist and resist again the temptation of loveless obedience. Commit to renewing your love for Jesus daily. That's what our Five to Thrive is all about. I'm not going to put it up on the screen today, right? But you know what it is, worship, spending time regularly with God finding a group to study with, finding a way to serve, finding a way to share your hope. Renew your love for Jesus. Enjoy the power of the Holy Spirit to carry you through to the end because Jesus reminds us what is waiting for us in verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Why don't you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, We love you. You have demonstrated your abundant, overflowing love for us over and over again, even when we are spiteful, even when we are turned away, even when we are rebellious, even when we are focused so much on the things of our world and our lives that we forget about you, you still love us. And so, Lord, we do love you, but I pray that you will, in each of our hearts, renew that love, strengthen that, Father God, you made us to be in relationship with you. Those relationships are broken through sin. They are healed through faith in your son Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, if there are any here who have not yet embraced that kind of relationship, who have not yet embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would, so that they would experience your overflowing, overflowing, overwhelming love and grow in their own love for you. Lord God, protect us as a church from falling into loveless obedience. From just grinding it out because it's got to get ground out. But instead, that it's, we work for you out of love and our deep appreciation for what you have done for us. Fill our hearts with love to overflowing, Lord, that we may indeed let our light shine before the world. That they may give you glory. Father God, help us to love you more that we may be this lighthouse you have called us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.